Hello, guys. Great to be back for our second week, and um, I'm glad to be speaking this morning to you guys. Particularly welcome if this is your first week with us today. Real joy to have you. Um, last week, I shared a bit of our vision as the church, um, as Herald, uh, and our, our vision really can be said like this. We want to be a distinctive community in the heart of this city that acts as a sign of hope to every corner of Liverpool and beyond. And helpfully, that vision can be summed up in our name, Herald. It's this word that speaks on the one hand of this um, message of good news that we carry, but on the other hand of actually embodying that message as a community, being a sign of that to other people as they encounter us. And um, the, the thing about the good news that we carry, the hope we carry for our city, is that ultimately the hope is Jesus. And, uh, and so what more helpful place to start this morning when we start our first teaching series as a church is to look at the person of Jesus more deeply and begin to explore, uh, to explore him together. Helpfully, the, the four accounts at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all written for that end. They're all um, written by people telling ordinary stories of uh, Jesus' encounter with everyday people uh, so that we would get to know Jesus better for ourselves and so that um, we would begin to see his relevance for our own lives. So we're going to be digging into uh, these accounts over the next six weeks or so. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a single encounter in turn with a, an individual that Jesus meets, um, and that person comes away radically changed. So before we kind of start the series, spoiler alert, um, that's the dynamic you're going to see again and again. Someone meets Jesus and comes away with a life that's radically changed. And um, that's because it's always the pattern when people encounter Jesus. They come away with a changed life. And um, if you're here this morning and you're kind of exploring faith at the moment, you're just curious, our hope is that this is going to be a great space for you to begin to explore who Jesus is for yourself more deeply and get to know him better. And if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for years, some of these stories might be quite familiar to you. Um, but my hope is that as we really spend our time on them and dig into them, uh, that we begin to see the kind of profoundly human dynamics that are going on in each of these encounters, and that as we look at them, uh, you begin to kind of um, be reignited with a desire to have a fresh encounter with Jesus of your own. So that's kind of where we're heading, and uh, we're going to dive into the first encounter right away this morning, series one, episode one, if you like, to quote Netflix. Um, right, first encounter we're going to look at is today is uh, the moment where Jesus met Zacchaeus. And uh, that encounter can be found in Luke chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, there might be one on your seats. If not, this is a good time to look it up. Otherwise, it'll come up on the screen behind me. Uh, so you can follow along as I read it. So it's Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, 
Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Brilliant. I don't know how you got on there listening to that. I was preparing the talk this week, and I was rereading this story again. And my reaction, if I'm honest, was like, I got to the end. I was like, whoa, slow down. What is going on here? Because it's a really short story. It's like 10 um, ten verses, and the writer's so breezy about it, it just describes the story. But there's a heck of a lot going on here from the beginning to end. And I was like, I can't make sense of this. I mean, at first reading, this is, this is how I'd summarize the story. Short guy in a crowd, can't see Jesus because he's too short. Got that bit. He moves to a different location. He climbs a tree to see Jesus. Jesus then sees him, invites him down, invites him to dinner. The guy then has a 180-degree life change at that point, gives away all his money to the poor, and then Jesus says something about him being descended from Abraham. Like, that's, that was my reading, and I was like, I think I need to read this a few times over. And sometimes the writers in the New Testament do this. They just sort of breeze past these huge details, but they're inviting us to look a little deeper. So we're going to do that now, and we're going to kind of go back through the story bit by bit, right from the beginning, and we're going to start to ask some questions along the way and try and understand what's going on in this encounter. Because under the sort of broad sweep of events, we know there's a lot happening. So the first question I like to ask with all of these episodes, really, it's a really helpful question. It's a very technical question. Who is this dude? <laughs> who's, who's Zacchaeus? So we, we know four things about him from the off. Firstly, his name's Zacchaeus, right, which derives from this old Hebrew word. It means righteous one. Secondly, we know he's short. That, that bit stood out. Thirdly, we know his profession. He's a chief tax collector. And fourthly, economically speaking, he's rich. And, um, and of those four things, probably the most key thing for us to understand is the third one. He's a chief tax collector. That's his job. Because that actually tells us a heck of a lot about Zacchaeus. Uh, but to understand that, we need to have a bit of background of the Roman taxation system, which I'm sure you guys are uh, experts in. Um, so you have to sort of forgive me a brief digression at this point. If you're a nerd, you'll love this bit. If you're not, stick with me. I think it's essential for understanding a bit more about Zacchaeus. So the Roman taxation system, I've done my research, it works in two ways. Uh, you've got direct taxes, that's pretty simple. It kind of is like council tax, as far as I can work out. Pays for infrastructure, roads, aqueducts, whatever else the Romans did, basic services. Every adult pays it to their Roman prefect. In this case, it'd be Pontius Pilate. He's the kind of ruler of the area there, the province they're in. Second kind of taxation is much more complicated. It's indirect tax. And that's basically when you do a particular activity, you pay a tax. So you've got things like buying and selling goods. Uh, if you buy and sell a slave, that was a thing then, you'd have to pay a tax on that. Inheritance tax, emancipation tax. If you cross particular roads, bridges, if you took a ferry, there'd be specific taxes attached to that. So as you can imagine, for somewhere as big as the Roman Empire, which is basically most of Europe and half the Middle East at that point, that is an absolute nightmare to administer. The thing about the Romans is they're very clever. And so they thought, rather than trying to, um, trying to levy that tax ourselves, what we'll do is we'll outsource the problem. And we'll, we'll look for key individuals, foreigners, non-Romans, in the various provinces under imperial rule, and we'll get them to do it for us. And what would happen is they'd get people to uh, bid for the contracts, to collect taxes from their own people. And what would happen is they would basically say, we're going to collect X from our people. This is how much we think we can get from our area. And generally, it would go to the highest bidder, as you can imagine. Uh, and what happened then is that person was then given free reign to go and collect taxes from their own people. And um, the, the thing, interesting thing about that is there wasn't much oversight. So it was basically they were left to do it how they wanted. And so there was huge corruption at this point. 
um, because the, the, the contract owner had to pay to, the, to Rome exactly the amount that they'd originally estimated. They might have collected more, they might have collected less, they had to pay the exact amount. And so obviously the only reason someone would take on something like this is because they thought they could collect more, so they could make a profit for themselves, make a living for themselves. And uh, so, so what happened is they would target uh, specific people, for example, who didn't have much money, but they'd have loads of land, and then when they gave them their tax bill and they couldn't pay it, they'd have to hand over their land to the contract owner in recompense. And so they'd, the contract owners would become incredibly wealthy, and they'd get loads of land from the area. Or they'd, or they'd make up figures, they'd charge them far more than they needed to, and that way they'd make it worth their while, they'd, have, uh, they'd become incredibly wealthy. And um, the thing about this is that the Romans designed the system this way. They deliberately made it this corrupt system. It's basically state-backed corruption. And what they had to do is they had to incentivize someone to turn on their people, to betray their people, and collect taxes and administer tax for the Roman Empire. And the only incentive they could give them is basically to get, to get filthy rich. And, um, and so this is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is someone who's turned on his own people, and he's become incredibly wealthy, but the, the price has been as high as it gets. He's severed all friendship with his own people. Interestingly, when in the rest of the Bible where it talks about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors, uh, often in the same breath as sinners and prostitutes, this is a different group of people. This was, these were the people who were slaves or low-level employees of the contract owners. But Zacchaeus isn't now. We're told he's wealthy and he's a chief tax collector. So he's definitely a contract owner. So this tells us actually quite a lot about Zacchaeus. Now we know how he sits in, in the middle of this crowd. Uh, he was born a Jew. His, he had a very Jewish name. His name was Righteous One. And like all Jews in that time, he would have been raised to believe passionately certain things. Believe that uh, the, uh, the Jews were the people of God. They had a unique place in the world. They were born for freedom. And under Roman imperial occupation, their main job at the moment was to stick together to defend their culture and to wait for this moment when a Messiah was going to come from amongst the Jewish people and finally liberate them from the Roman Empire. That was kind of like um, Jewish upbringing 101, and this would have been exactly uh, how Zacchaeus was raised too. But somewhere in the process, we know that Zacchaeus completely turned his back on that upbringing, on his Jewish heritage, on his friends and family. He became incredibly rich, but the price of that was to completely sever relationships with his own people. So we can guarantee that as Zacchaeus is in this crowd at the beginning, that being the shortest person there is just the twist in the, of the knife in the back, but the real wounder is that we can guarantee he hasn't got a single friend in that crowd. This is a, a, a massive crowd of Jews in a Jewish city gathering together to see a Jewish traveling teacher, and he hasn't got a single friend in the crowd. And um, what's, what's interesting at this point is that Zacchaeus is so determined to see Jesus. So, um, you know, we see that he kind of calculates where Jesus is going to be, and he runs ahead, thinks about the spot where Jesus will be in half an hour's time or whatever it is, and he climbs a tree and waits there with a good vantage point. And it's curious that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus that much, and it's obviously not just abstract curiosity for him because he's a wealthy wealthy guy, and to be seen hoisting up his robes and running around the crowd and climbing up a tree isn't normal behavior. It would have been incredibly undignified then. I mean, it would be undignified now, to be honest, as well. Um, and, so, and so we know there's something more personal going on. There's a reason he's that curious. And um, I, I was reading one of the commentaries 
in the week that was kind of reflecting on this and saying it's, it's quite likely that Zacchaeus may have, may have heard this rumor about Jesus that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And there's something about that phrase that had just kind of like touched a nerve for him. Whatever it was, he was obviously personally invested and wanted to know more about this Jesus. And, um, and so Zacchaeus climbs this tree, and it's a sycamore fig tree, um, which, again, gardeners amongst you, I'm sure you're completely familiar with. Helpfully, I put a picture uh, up for you here. This is a sycamore fig tree. They're basically very common in the area. They grow by the sides of the roads there. They're easy to climb, so if you're thinking Zacchaeus is a great athlete, think again. It's, I think anyone could do it, although I probably couldn't because I'm terrible with heights. Um, anyway, so Zacchaeus is climbing this tree. One of the things we learn from this picture, though, that I think is interesting is these trees are bushy and they're evergreen. So Zacchaeus's plan is to not be seen at any point, right? He climbs the tree. It's a fully incognito trip, this. He, he doesn't want to be seen by Jesus, certainly not by the crowd. It would have been very, very embarrassing for a person of his wealth. And, um, and so he's up there, and, uh, and he kind of wants to suss Jesus out, but he doesn't want to have any interaction, not with Jesus, not with the crowd. He's kind of the equivalent of a back row dweller in church. Shout out to the back row, by the way. <laughs> Love you guys. Um, you know when you, you, know when you, just, you, you don't want anybody to hassle you, but you want to kind of get, get the sort of the, the cut things yourself. But Jesus doesn't pass by at this point. Zacchaeus is up this tree, waiting for Jesus to pass by with the crowds. But Jesus stops, and he looks up and over the crowd, and he sees Jesus. And again, we don't quite know whether he just sees a sort of a glimmer of something in the trees at the corner of his eye, or whether he knows Zacchaeus is there because he's Jesus, and he's known all along. Either way, he looks over the crowd, and in front of them all, he addresses Zacchaeus. He calls him by his name, Zacchaeus, righteous one. And then he says, I must stay in your home today. Come down immediately. In fact, the, the Greek phrase Jesus uh, uses makes it clear that he's talking about an overnight stay. So Jesus is passing through Jericho. That's how the story opened. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It's not far away. So Jesus is not planning on stopping at this point. So this is him pressing pause on his whole itinerary. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at least 24 hours, dinner, bed and breakfast, the whole works. I want to stay in your home tonight. And so Zacchaeus is just completely overcome at that point. I mean, everyone can hear. And the crowd are totally livid. And the reason they're livid is because in that culture, who you ate with and who you opened your home to was incredibly significant. I mean, to be honest, what's going on here is profound in our own culture, but what's going on in their culture is 10 times more significant still. Jesus is publicly inviting himself to stay at Zacchaeus's home, and it's this act of profound social acceptance and recognition. That's what's, that's what's implied here. Effectively, Jesus is willingly sharing Zacchaeus' dis, uh, disrepute. It's this very public extension of friendship to the one person in the crowd that has absolutely no friends. And as I've, I've been preparing this talk this week, I've, I've kind of caught myself getting drawn into this story, um, kind of beyond average, I guess. Like, I started with that sort of very superficial reading of the story, and as I dug in, I, I just kept finding myself coming back to it and even thinking about it in other moments. And it, it took me a while to realize, but it's this moment right in the middle of the story that was what, that was, what was bringing me back again and again. It's this incredibly profound 
moment where Jesus extends friendship to Zacchaeus in front of everyone completely unexpectedly. And it's the hinge moment for the whole story. It's the drive for all the kind of crazy life change that follows. And I can relate. Um, for, for me, I, I didn't become a, a Christian until I was a teenager. And like most teenagers, uh, I had quite an uncomfortable teenage period. Uh, for me, it was the transition to secondary school. And for one reason or another, I didn't, I didn't really make any friends at all. And what was... And what was hard was, um, you know, what happens in some schools, I think, is that it becomes a bit of a joke after a while. And this is what happened for, for people there. There was this sort of unspoken sort of social bullying that emerged that was like, um, kind of enforced that as a way of being for years and years to come. And, um, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'd get to the weekend and wouldn't have anyone to hang out with or the evening or something. It was kind of in school, lunchtime, or where I'd sit. No one wanted to sit with me, or no one wanted me to join in. And it was a joke. Like, it was a, it was a, a joke that just didn't finish. And people, I think, realized after a while how random this is, how random it was, how it had just sort of come out of nowhere. But by that point, it was kind of ingrained and enforced amongst people, and very difficult to stop, not least for me. Around the same time, I, um, I started finding myself in church on a Sunday evening. My sister had just become a Christian, and, um, and I followed her along. And I remember just being so curious about Jesus. I think I'd had no profound thought at all in my life up to that point. I hadn't thought about Jesus at all. But um, I just, I remember being just captivated by, by him. I, c I can remember actually before I was sure really what I believed, reading John's gospel for myself and just being kind of engrossed in, in, the, in the person of Jesus. And, and I can remember sort of rationalizing in my head, how could someone have made this up? I don't think you could invent a character like this. It's so surprising all the time. And um, anyway, long story short, I became a Christian, but my school years were still really difficult, and they were lonely at that time. And uh, worst of all, no one at church knew that when I went home and started the week, I didn't have any friends, and it was awkward. And my family were probably the only people who knew, but they, we didn't really talk about it. So it sort of became this odd, unspoken sort of secret. Uh, for me, it felt like shame sort of starting to hang around my neck, this kind of weird thing in a group of people that I'm like, they don't really know. I, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm odd. I don't really have like a social life. I just, it doesn't really work for me. And um, it became a very powerful thing. And, and it, it, so I was quite unhappy through a lot of that time. Um, probably about the age of 16. So I'd been a Christian maybe for a couple of years. I went to a Christian festival, Soul Survivor. Some of you guys might have been to that at one point or another. And um, I came from the church I'd sort of become a Christian and had like 30 people in it. So when I arrived and there was like 10,000 people, I was freaking out. I was like, what is going on? I was pretty overawed, to be honest. Um, and I kind of thought initially, this is going to be an amazing week. There's all these people here. I'm going to have a great time. I'm, my relationship with Jesus is going to come on. I'm so excited. And uh, what was painful is that the first couple of days started, and we'd be in this tent with like 10,000 people. Everyone's jumping around in worship, which if you've been to Soul Survivor, that's obligatory. You've got to jump around in worship. And I'm there like, I think I'm the only one here who just feels totally cold on the inside. And it's starting to annoy me why that's the case. I just felt odd. I felt like the odd one out. And people would talk again and again about how much Jesus loved us. And the more they would say it, the less it would mean to me. I just feel nothing on the inside. And... Um, uh, and I, I remember by the Wednesday, it had got really painful. Like, as I started to sort of think about it more, the more I just felt like, problem's me. Like, uh, there's something wrong with me. I'm, I'm an outsider. I feel like an outsider in this room. I want, I believe it, and I want to feel something. I want it to, 
to, to do something to me, but it doesn't. I just feel cold. And, um, and so that morning, the guy preaching, I mean, it was vintage stuff. Jesus loves you. It was a, it was a great sermon, actually. There were some great points in it. Um, and I, um, it was brilliant, but just the same again. I was just, I felt nothing. And actually, by then, I almost felt sort of spiteful on the inside, like just sort of angry. I don't know, at myself, at God, whatever it was. And at the end, he, 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 he paused kind of more than usual and said, I think there's people here who, who know that Jesus loves them, but they, don't, they can't feel it for one reason or another. I want to invite you to stand and we'll pray for you. And I guess I, I mean, I instantly, number one, I was like, that's me. I mean, that's quite specific and it's 100% all I've been thinking about for three days. Number two, I was desperate. So I was like, I'm going to stand up. And there was maybe 50 people in the room at this point. Um, oh, well, there's thousands of people in the room. Sorry, 50 people standing up. And, um, and sort of in silence, and the room was in silence, people sort of gathered around to pray for us. And I had my eyes closed. And people were praying, and I, I can, I just, again, I just I felt worse than ever. And as people were praying, I was kind of like, you know, initially you're sort of like, right, come on. And then I was just like, oh, I feel nothing again. And, and, it, and the problem is me. And, um, and I remember t- telling God this. I was like, look, nothing's happening. Nothing. There's just, there's, there's nothing doing here. There's, you know, there's no hope for me. And um, I was getting more and more frustrated. And then I, it was after quite a while, I just, I heard in the distance someone um, come up, it was the worship leader, and just picked up his guitar, and he just started strumming a few chords, and he started just singing quietly this song that I, uh, I was going back through this this week, it's still so powerful to me, the memory of it, I'll spare you me singing the song, but um, it, was, it, was called, it was called Befriended, and, and the, the word started like this, Befriended, Befriended by the King above all kings, Surrendered, Surrendered to the Friend above all friends. Excuse me. And it was like this wave just came over me. And um, something in me broke at that point. My legs literally just gave way. I fell backwards. Luckily, at Soul Survivor, they're good at catching you. And um, I didn't see that coming. And I was just this powerful moment of the Spirit of God we talk about at church, just showing me directly his affection for me. And um, I just lay there on the floor. There was people leaning down, praying for me now awkwardly. And um, it was incredible. I, just, I, I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he liked me even. Most importantly, I knew that he was my friend. And it was the most meaningful thing you could have said to me at that point. There's a point in the... Um, well, hang on. Let me just say, I, that, that was a turning point moment for me. Um, I've had, I've had profound moments like that before then, and I've certainly had them after then, but it was a turning point. And I, I would, I, you know, I got back, I'd have a couple of years of school left. The situation wasn't radically different, but I was a totally different person at that point. I was open to a whole new story for my life. And even now, looking back, I don't think about that that often. My whole adult life has been built on that one truth that Jesus is my friend. He's proud to call me his friend. And um, th- there's this point in the Gospels where Jesus says this to his disciples, actually. He calls them friends. John 15, 15. Um, uh, and he, he basically, th- th- at this point, they've journeyed through with Jesus. They've called him teacher. they called him Messiah. they called him son of God, even. But this is a moment where he calls them friends. And it feels like his final word to them and also the word he, they most need to hear. And this is exactly what's going on with Zacchaeus in our story 
2, it's the word he most needs to hear from Jesus, that he's no longer an outsider, he's no longer a misfit, and he doesn't have to keep watching Jesus from his hiding place in a tree. In the midst of a huge crowd, Jesus singles him out, he calls him by name, he invites him to stay in his home. And I think many of us, if I'm honest, need to hear that again this morning. Some of us are stuck in lives uh, right now because we've not truly experienced the friendship of Jesus, or at least not for a long time. Uh, You might be here and you're a bit like Zacchaeus. You're kind of like up in the tree, incognito, sussing Jesus out. Uh, Or maybe you're like the disciples and you've called him teacher. Uh, Maybe you've called him son of God, but you've never really called him friend. Uh, And maybe the reason that that you're kind of uh, like that is that you still feel on the inside that there's something excluding you from, uh, from that. Uh, it, it might be that you're kind of, you feel like Zacchaeus, like your life's too much for Jesus, your story's too much, it's too offensive, whatever else. Maybe like me, you kind of, there's things in your life where you're carrying a sense of uh, shame about and you're feeling like it's counting you out of what Jesus has come to bring to you. But here's the thing, the whole reason that we're hearing from Luke the the story of Zacchaeus and not a hundred other stories he could have told us at this point is that for Luke, Zacchaeus is the worst of the worst. He is the person who is least likely to be befriended by Jesus in the whole of Israel. His story is out there, which means that none of us are excluded, not one of us. See, Jesus sees us. He's not offended by us or put off by us. He knows your name. He knows your story. And just like Zacchaeus, he says, it's time for me to stay in your house. I choose you to be my friend. Stop what I'm doing. I give you my intention and extend a hand of friendship to you. That's God's word to you. So let's just um, finish up. I'm conscious of time, but just um, seeing how the story finishes. Luke fast-forwards to the end of Jesus' stay with Zacchaeus, and suddenly we see this entirely different man. It's this um, new man who pledges to give away half of his wealth from the off, and then to give, um, to give back four times the amount that he owed anyone over the years. Now, it's obvious that this isn't like a legal requirement that Zacchaeus is following up. The, the most strict stipulation in the Old Testament when you cheated someone out of income was to pay it back plus a fifth. Now, for the maths bods amongst you, that's 120% here. And Zacchaeus is, is saying, I'm going to pay back 400% of what I owed anyone after having already given away half his wealth. And so this is Zacchaeus reaching for the greatest sort of amount he can think of in order to try and make good on his life to this point. This is someone who's a new man, he's holding nothing back, and he's stepping into a new story for his life that Jesus has brought to him. And, and Jesus, interestingly, describes this U-turn that happens in Zacchaeus' life as salvation. salvation. Today, salvation has come to your house. Now, note that there's no kind of religious rituals that have gone on at any point in this story. Um, all that's happened is there's been a, a face-to-face encounter with Jesus and then a radically changed life. And that's because at the heart of the Christian faith, that's what it is. Everything else is gloss. A face-to-face encounter with Jesus of your own and then a radically changed life. Everything else is gloss. And, you know, Jesus declares then to Zacchaeus, but really actually to the grumbling onlookers at this point, 
He says, this man too is the son of Abraham. And I think what he's saying is, see, see what is now flowing out of this man's life. This guy who you've written off, this guy who um, is an outsider, who you've misnamed as someone beyond hope and beyond redemption, despite all that's gone on in his life up to this point, see now, look, look at what he's doing. He's a true Jew after all. Effectively, what he's doing is he's restoring and reaffirming Zacchaeus' name, righteous one. He's calling him back to his original story. And finally, Jesus finishes with this um, proclamation about himself, really. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And it's this image of a shepherd uh, seeking after his sheep and saving them. And it deliberately mirrors this kind of prophetic expectation in the Old Testament that God was going to come through his Messiah and finally and properly shepherd his own people and lead the strays back to him. And so the point Jesus is making here is that the crowd shouldn't be surprised by what they're seeing in Zacchaeus. This isn't a one-off. This is Jesus' blueprint. This is his mission. This is what he wants to do for everyone. To seek out the lost, the lonely, the outsiders, the strays, those who've been misnamed by others, and to welcome them back into the fold and restore them to their true identity and purpose. You know, he sees us in the crowd even when we're hiding. He knows our true name even when it's been written off by others. He stops what he's doing. He gives us his attention. He extends friendship to us. And, you know, Jesus' offer of friendship isn't just this private thing. It's not like, Jesus is my friend, but we can't tell anyone. You know, I had, I had people like that at school. They, they would be happy to be my friend when it was just the two of us because they didn't care, but they were too embarrassed when there was a crowd around. It's, it's, it's costly to be someone's friend around a crowd. And um, actually, when we think of it, it's one of the most powerful things about friendship, the fact that it's public, because it changes how people see us. They, uh, people see us by the people that we're associated with. We say, that's my friend. And that's why it's the most transformational thing in the world in particular, when the head of all humanity says he's proud to be your friend. One of the best things about being part of a, a new church plant like this is how relational it all is. Um, because everything's so, so new, um, the thing that holds it all together, more than sort of slick services or ministry areas, don't laugh, guys. They're, all, they're okay. They're all right. They'll get better. They'll get better. Um, but the thing that holds it all together is that we're becoming a community of friends on a journey together and sharing life together. That's at the center of what we're doing right now. And we get to say this phrase again and again at the moment. You'll hear it at some point. There's space at the table for you too, um, which really means you, you don't just have to come and attend here. You're welcome to do that. But Actually, if you want it, there's a, there's a place here in this community for you. There's a unique role for you to play. And, you know, making room in our midst for others, whatever their background, is central to what we're called to be as the church. And actually, the most potent thing that we have to offer our city, far more than any kind of political influence or something like that, is a ministry of friendship. And I really believe that what sort of core to what God has for us as a church is to is to is to be this ministry of friendship across the city and really to, to reach across divides in the city and welcome people in, to literally pull a seat out from the table for people and welcome them to share a meal with us. But here's the thing. 
if that's where we're going, if that's what we're called to as a church, for, for us to be able to really step into that uh, properly, we first need to be people who receive the friendship of Jesus for ourselves. We, we receive that unconditional friendship, the reality that he's proud to call us friends. And we need to, we need to hear that and allow him to liberate us from the parts of our lives that have gone astray or the parts that we're embarrassed about, the parts we haven't let him even remotely near because we don't know what we're going to be met with, to allow him to speak friendship over us again and to, like Zacchaeus, restore us and raise us up to the people that he originally made us to be.